Skeptical. It's the series that we've been doing for the last few weeks. This was the sermon series stock card that I proposed. Pastor Nate shot down, was disappointed. So here it is. I'll do what I want. Oh. I do want to say, if you have enjoyed our series, we only have one week left, but if you've been enjoying wrestling with some of these topics over the last however many weeks, uh, and you are not a part of one of our adult classes that meets downstairs on a Sunday morning, you're missing out. Uh, We have, at 9 a.m., we have four different classes that meet downstairs for adults. We have two that meet during this hour. Our teachers are incredible. Uh, I'm convinced they're better than what you would hear in most pulpits across America on a Sunday morning. Just the time they put in, the work they prepare, the content they bring. And, And if you've enjoyed the skeptical series, part of it is because we're wrestling with difficult questions and difficult topics. But when you go to a class downstairs, you're able to engage in it in a way that you can't hear, right? Because there's discussion, there's questions. Don't pop your hand up halfway through my sermon to ask me to clarify something. That's not an invitation. I will make a face at you and I will ignore it. The, uh, we just have an incredible team downstairs. And so I'd really like to challenge you, if you have not tried out one of our adult classes, look in your bulletin, see what's going on down there. There's a list of all the classes and who the teachers are. Check it out. If you've enjoyed this series, you'll love what's going on downstairs. Today... We're asking the question, isn't the Bible incompatible with science? And I'm excited about it because that's one of those hot button issues that people like to freak out about and get really upset. If you have a reaction along those lines to my message, you can drop me an email. It's uh, todd.johnson at brandywine (laughs) at brandywine.church. I want to make sure you got the whole thing there. I timed this well. I'm actually leaving for a mission trip to South America later tonight. So I just drop some grenades and leave the country. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Here's the truth, though. This is not an area that we have a great track record in, is it? That the church over the centuries has not done a great job when it comes to science and faith. And how we've reacted and how we've responded. That there, there seems to be a, a general tendency to a panicked response at any perceived threat to Scripture. Whether it was labeling those who believed the earth to be rotating around the sun heretics centuries ago. Or forcing court battles over evolution being taught in school over the last century. Uh, Over the last century in particular, since the Scopes Monkey Trials of 1925, uh, where the state uh, brought a teacher to court and tried him for teaching evolution in school, this has been an issue that has really polarized people in our country as, as we seek to reconcile the two. That for many Christians... Uh, science has become something that they treat as incompatible with faith, as an enemy motivated to undermine and do away with God. Some of the response seems to be rooted almost in fear, a fear that science could somehow disprove God or invalidate our faith or create questions that we don't know how to answer. 
I've seen it play out in some circles as a fear of intellectualism. That too much knowledge could be a dangerous thing. Here's what I like to suggest. Not only is that approach ineffective, it's dangerous. Now, when we've looked at studies over the years, and I've mentioned this statistic before, but depending on the resource you read, uh, some would say that somewhere between 60 and 90% of young people, when they graduate from high school and the church, they graduate from faith. And the number one reason, one of the top reasons given when they survey these young people, say, why why did you leave the faith? What was it that happened? is that for many of them, they grew up in environments that portrayed science and faith as something incompatible. They were told, you have to believe the way that we have interpreted Scripture, or you're rejecting all of it. You have to accept this explanation, or you are calling God a liar. You're rejecting all of it. And when they head off to college, and they're confronted with evidence or professors, or teachers, that really seems to make sense. And it's hard to answer. Coming from a framework of, well, you either believe one or the other, and man, this really makes sense. I guess I don't believe in God. That this approach has done more damage than it's done good. I find myself asking a couple questions when I think about this. The first is this. Does fear-based faith reflect a healthy understanding of God's power? You know, we look at verses, and there's so many, but we look at verses like Psalm 147, verse 5, which says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? find it hard to believe that God feels threatened by some of the things that we react to. That somehow God's word, God's message, God's plan of salvation for reaching us has survived and endured century after century after century, millennia after millennia after millennia. We are not one discovery away from God being like, oh, that's the one that's beyond me. Right, that sometimes our fear is a fear that is certainly not shared by God. It's a threat that he does not feel. The second question I have is this. Are we asking the wrong questions of Scripture when we come at this topic? What do I mean by that? Uh, there's a hilarious uh, British science fiction book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the, to the Galaxy. Has anybody read it? You guys are letting me down. That is not nearly enough hands. (laughs) But the ones that were up were enthusiastic. Uh, This book is amazing. Just saying. But here's the deal. There's a moment in the book. It has nothing to do with the story. It's just a random aside. Where all of a sudden the author is just like, hey, by the way, they're on this one planet. Uh, They decided they wanted to answer the question of life, the universe, and everything. What's the answer? So they built a massive computer, the most powerful computer in all the universe. And they called it Deep Thought. And they turned it on, and the computer was like, hello? And they said, tell us the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And the computer said, that's a, that's a big question. They said, yeah. And he said, I'm going to have to think about it. And they go, okay. He said, it's going to take me seven and a half million years to get the answer. 
they were like, all right, get started. So seven and a half million years go by. It was a transition sentence. And, and there's two representatives chosen to go before deep thought and discover the answer and relay it to the rest of the, the planet's population. And they're so excited. This is the day there's masses of crowds outside the building. They're so excited. And the two go to deep thought. And they're like, today's the day. And he's like, yes, it is. And they said, uh, do you have an answer? Deep thought goes, yeah. But you're not going to like it. I'm like, what? Just, just tell us. It's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes. He goes, the answer to life? I'm like, yes. Universe? Yes. And everything? Yes. Is 42. <laughs> and they, they there's, there's a stunned silence, and the one guy looks out the window at the millions of people out there, and he goes, they're, they're going to lynch us. <laughs> and the other guy just kind of screams, 42, what are you talking about? And Deep Thought goes, the problem is, you don't know the question. Go, what? He was like, when you figure out the question, the answer will make sense. And uh, I think that's hilarious. She tells you a lot about me, right? I love the idea that they didn't know the question for the answer that they had. And I think sometimes it's easy for us when we approach Scripture to forget that we live in 2019 in American culture with different values and different things that we think are important, that we have questions about life, the universe, and everything that are far different than people would have even had a couple centuries ago let alone thousands of years ago. Now, we're going to be looking at some passages today that were written 3,500 years ago in an ancient language, in an ancient culture, in another part of the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, what were the questions that they were getting answers to back then? What were they looking for? What was the message that God was giving them that might be different from what we're looking for today, that that we might be reading into it something that's not there. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. Which this is absolutely true. It's inspired by God. Yet some would look at it and go, there's contradictions. There's places where it doesn't line up. It says this here, it says that there. It says this about the world, but we know this now. What's going on? Our perspective can be limited. And I think part of the challenge for us as believers is to constantly remember that Scripture is inspired. That God's truth is God's truth. And that sometimes when we see what are supposedly errors or contradictions are far more likely to be our imperfect, human, fallible minds reading it wrong. Understanding it incorrectly. That our bias, whether we realize we have one or not, can lead us astray in our interpretation. An important piece to finding the question that Scripture is answering is understanding the genre the Bible was written in. It was actually written in quite a few. 
Historical, the law, wisdom, literature, psalms, prophecy, apocalyptic, books like Revelation, the Gospels, the epistles, uh, that's a fancy word for the letters that the apostles wrote in the New Testament, that there's a whole range of writing styles and genres that make up this one book that we read today. And, And here's an example of how genre can make a difference in how we understand a passage. Uh, There's several instances in Song of Solomon. Yeah, just got interesting, right? Uh, Where the woman is described as sick with love. And and, uh, I remember the other year we were doing this series with the students, and I was reading different commentaries, and I I read one person's approach to it. and, And they were taking a very literal approach to Song of Solomon, that this is literal history describing literal events. And they said, uh, clearly, this woman has a love-related illness, some sort of STD. (laughs) Oh, what in the world? Like, we talk about being lovesick today, right? Lovesick puppy. uh, It's ancient erotic poetry. It was using word images to convey a feeling, an idea, a perspective, right? Like, for example, let me quote one of the greatest love poems of our modern age. But I would walk 500 miles. (laughs) And I would walk 500 more just to be the man who walks a thousand miles to fall down at your door. Da-da-da. Da-da-da, 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 dun-diddle-un-diddle-un-diddle-a-da. A selection from the greatest song ever, The Proclaimers, I'm going to be 500 miles. Could you imagine 3,500 years from now, if archaeologists discover, and that was one of the few remnants of our culture and society to survive 3,500 years later, and they were examining it and they were trying to find the meaning Behind it. And and so one of them would propose, well, clearly uh, there was a man in love with a woman, uh, but she was 500 miles away. So he began walking, and after walking the 500 miles, realized she was actually 500 more, and walked those as well before falling down exhausted at her door. And, and, (laughs) like, when I was in college, uh, pre-Heather, um, I may have thought I was madly in love with this person who was actually literally a thousand miles away at another school. And so I would sing this song to myself all the time because I was stupid. And, and not once did I ever think to myself, you know what, I am going to walk 500 miles and then walk 500 more. I had a car. I didn't even drive the car there. I was like, that's a lot of effort. <laughs> a thousand miles. I don't even know if this is going to happen. It didn't. The, uh, Right, we, we get when we hear this song, because we live in this culture, we understand the context, we get he's communicating a feeling, an emotion. He's trying to convey an idea. Now, this isn't an argument to say, hey, you can't take anything in the Bible literally. It's merely an observation that the genre informs how we interpret. Right? Understanding that Song of Solomon's is poetry changes how we understand some of the verbal images created in it. Right? Understanding that another section of Scripture is intended to be history suggests, yeah, 
take this literally. As you look at these lists of genres, do you notice one that's missing? Science. I would suggest that the Bible was never intended to be a scientific textbook. God's goal in reaching out to mankind was not to make clear the mechanics of the universe. The genres he used all shared one purpose, to paint the narrative of how a broken, sinful people can be reunited with God. That from the beginning to the end of Scripture, it is a message designed to point people to God and show them how to be reunited with him. So how does understanding the culture and genre impact how we understand some of the verses that people wrestle with when it comes to the question of science and faith? Let me point out one uh, to you in Genesis 1, 6 through 8. It says, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning. The second day. Uh, some newer translations use softer language for that word vault. But in the ancient Hebrew, it literally is vault or firmament or even dome uh, in some translations. Creating a word picture that God created a literal dome to separate this ocean of water above the earth from the water on the earth. Normally we breeze past it because that creates a lot of questions. Another passage, Genesis 7-11, writing about when the flood happens, also mentions this water above. Genesis 7-11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. And so there's different approaches to these passages. Right? And one of the approaches uh, is called concordism, which demands that science must agree with what Scripture has said. And if Scripture says there was an ocean of water surrounding the earth, then therefore there must have been one at that time. And so the theory is that there was this ocean of water surrounding the earth. And then at the time of the flood, it came down, and that's why it's not there anymore. We've sent rockets up. They don't have to fly through an ocean to get to space. But here's the challenge, is if that was the case, if it did come down at that point, it shouldn't be written about after the time of Noah. And yet thousands of years after the flood, David writes in Psalm 104.6, You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. In the ancient Hebrew, it was clear he was talking about this mantle of water still being around the earth. In Hebrew... Uh, From his perspective, there was a massive amount of water. In Psalm 148, verse 4, he says, Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the skies. What do we do with these verses? We know from other ancient documents, both Jewish and other cultures, that at the time of the writing of Genesis, the scientific understanding throughout the known world was what we now call a three-tiered universe. Ancient Jews, like the world around them, believed the earth was flat. Don't try to read the the small print. 
Good luck. I'm going to walk you through it. Uh, ancient Jews, like the world around them, would have believed in what they call the, well, they didn't call it this, but it, what we call a three-tiered universe. That there was a lower tier, the foundations of the earth, where Sheol was, a, a kind of form of hell, the depths. And they pictured this as a foundation that everything else was on. The, the second tier would have been the earth itself. And what they understood, and this is why sometimes you read in Scripture, it talks about the earth being a circle, which we, because of our modern understanding, assume they're talking about a globe. But back then, the understanding was that it was a flat circle. That there was a land mass in the middle surrounded by water, and this was the earth. And then that there was this dome, the firmament, the vault, which had the sun and the moon and the stars all embedded in it. They were all the same distance from us, just different sizes. That's why some are bigger and smaller. And above the dome would have been this waters above the firmament. And above that, there would be a gateway to heaven where God was. And so we see some of that language seep in that we understand differently today because, you know, we understand uh, through our theology today that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So when we read passages that God can see everything, we understand it as, well, God is present everywhere. But 3,500 years ago, they would have understood it. Well, of course, God can see everything. He's at the top. It's flat. He's got the best view. He can see everything. That's, and I'm kind of making fun of it, right, because we look at this and we go, this is such a ludicrous Explanation, But for 3,500 years ago, this was the scientific understanding of the day. It just made sense. Right? Because from our... There's still people today that believe there's a flat earth. It just makes sense that it's flat. That it must be on something. Something must be supporting it. This idea that there's waters up above makes absolute sense because there's rain coming down, but there are no rivers going up. So the water's coming from somewhere. They didn't understand evaporation, condensation, the way we understand it today, right? And so there was this three-tiered universe understanding that was pretty universal for a long time. Here's a couple more verses that point to this understanding of a three-tiered universe. In Psalm 104.5, David writes, He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. For centuries, theologians were convinced that the earth was in a fixed location. Galileo got in a lot of trouble for suggesting otherwise. But it was because of verses like this. It's set on its foundations. Ecclesiastes 1.5 says, The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. They believe Galileo was a heretic for suggesting that the earth rotated around the sun Because from their perspective, a plain reading of Scripture made it obvious, no, the sun rotates around us. And so he was labeled a heretic. Now, we've resolved our theology on that in the century since, haven't we? We understand now that these verses are talking more about that we are the center of God's love, the center of God's plan to save mankind. That's not saying that the earth is literally the center of the universe with everything rotating around it. And it's saying, actually, we know the universe is in nonstop motion now. But there's still plenty of things that we debate about. John Walton, a conservative theologian that has done incredible work on ancient languages, and Genesis in particular, wrote, 
we must keep in mind that we are presumptuous if we consider our interpretations of Scripture to have the same authority as Scripture itself. Nobody is an infallible interpreter. We must always stand ready to reconsider our interpretations in light of new information. We must not let our interpretations stand in the place of Scripture's authority and thus risk misrepresenting God's revelation. In other words, he's saying, if, if I read something in the Bible and it doesn't line up with what I believe, the answer isn't to rewrite facts or come up with elaborate explanations to explain why I'm still right. The, the answer is to reconsider my interpretation and adjust. Confronted with new information, the religious leaders of Galileo's time refused to recognize the flaws in their interpretation. And today, they look foolish. The Pharisees spent centuries memorizing and debating Old Testament prophecies. They knew them to a degree that none of us will probably ever know them. And they were so convinced that they knew exactly what the Old Testament was saying about the coming Messiah, and they were so stuck in their interpretation that they didn't recognize him when he stood in front of them. A century from now, will believers look back at us the same way that we look at believers who labeled Galileo a heretic? Which triggers questions for me, like why does the Bible say the earth is the center of the universe? Why does it seem to support a view that suggests a three-tiered universe? What was the point in that? I want to suggest, uh, based on what a number of scholars have written in recent decades as they've understood ancient languages more and more and what's going on, that's because God accommodates us. What does that mean? It means that when God was inspiring and writing the Bible, His goal was to point the readers to himself. That's the point. That's the message. To lay out a path for us to be restored to him, not necessarily to create a detailed scientific explanation of the universe. The question being answered is, how do we know God? Accommodating means God uses our knowledge to make the point he wants to make. I I have four sons who just got tense. Uh, and and I mean, my wife and I, like, we just kept having kids. And, and when the oldest was around, you know, five or six years old, and there was another one on the way, he asked the question that every five or six-year-old probably asked at some point, uh, where do babies come from? Right? And here's the thing. We did not give a detailed explanation of sexual reproduction to a five- or six-year-old. That'd be weird. Maybe a little awkward. The, um, we, we said what probably many of you said. Babies come from mommy's tummy. And he was happy. He walked away. He was like, yeah, no, that makes sense. It's, and we were pointing to the truth, a very, very, very simplified version of the truth. But if one of my teenage sons came to me today and was like, where do babies come from? I mean, that would be surprising because they know, but the, that answer wouldn't cut it. Like, if I got up in front of the student ministry and we were talking about that topic, and I was like, look, guys, we all know where babies come from, mommy's tummy. 
That's not an appropriate level of information for where they're at developmentally, is it? And so there's this idea that, that God's point, it would be distracting to go into all this other stuff when his point is that he wants to point people to him. And so he used the knowledge they had of the world around them to point to himself. The core of what is communicated is true. Creation comes from God. But he didn't necessarily reveal scientific knowledge thousands of years beyond what they were ready to handle. It even begs the question, at what point then, which scientific level would be the one to include in the Bible? Because the science of today looks back at the science of a century ago and laughs, and a century from now will look back and laugh at some of the things we believe today. It's a constantly changing thing. And the Bible is dealing with an unchanging truth, that God wants to be restored to us, that he wants us restored to him. So to me, the biggest question, when we're asking the question of, do faith and science reconcile? Do they conflict? What's the purpose of the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible? It is to guide us to God. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. That it's intended to be guiding us to him. In 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, Paul writes to Timothy, You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood. And I think it's fascinating to remember that at the point when Paul is writing this, the New Testament doesn't exist yet. So he's talking about the Old Testament. So he's saying, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. For Paul, the point of the Old Testament was to give the wisdom to trust in God for salvation. He goes on to say, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. That, that, that in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, it makes it clear that the purpose of Scripture is to give us the ability to follow and honor God. To show us and demonstrate that from the Genesis to Revelation, the point is to point us to God. Dr. Paul Wallace, uh, he's a noted astrophysicist. He grew up in a Christian home. And kind of like I was saying at the beginning of the message, uh, when he went off to college and was confronted with this either-or kind of scenario, he left the faith. So it doesn't make sense. What I'm hearing makes more sense. And he left the faith. And he dove in and aggressively pursued his science. But then he couldn't help but notice the further he got into it, the hands of God all over creation and all that he was studying, and all that he was learning. And so for him, he discovered that faith and science inform each other. They complement one another. That, that science, the discoveries that we learn about the world and universe around us, point to God, not away from God. He wrote in his book, One of the great moments of my life came when I understood for the first time that being a Christian is about one thing and one thing only making a conscious commitment to follow Jesus. 
And this seems to be a very common reality with scientists. That I read in uh, one of the articles I was reading, it talked about how half of scientists claim to have a faith in God. That for so many, it, it doesn't tear down their faith, it points to God. The more they understand God's creation, the more they believe in God. Part of today's point is to frame this idea of what are the questions that we come at Scripture with? What are we looking for when we dive into it? Uh, And there's no way that we can tackle everything in the realm of science and faith in one Sunday morning sermon. So this is actually part one in a ten-part series. (laughs) And I'm only halfway kidding. Uh, Our summer series this summer that's going to be happening downstairs at both hours, the content repeats at 9 and 10.30 uh, during our adult Christian ed hour, although I would encourage bring your teens to it. I won't be offended when they're not in the gym and they're downstairs instead, is going to be wrestling with this very question of science and faith. And over the course of the summer, we've got some incredible speakers coming in in July. We're really going to dive into Genesis 1 through 3, which is kind of why I avoided it today, uh, because... It's just too much to try and dig into in just 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, but we have a few different uh, speakers coming. Dr. Jonathan Gibson from Westminster Seminary. Uh, he has a more conservative, traditional approach to uh, Genesis 1 through 3. Dr. David Bradstreet is an uh, astrophysicist and astronomy professor from Eastern University. He's going to come for two weeks. He's written an incredible book uh, who has just some incredible things to say. On July 28th, Dr. Michael Greenberg, a professor emeritus from the University of Delaware, is also going to look at the days of creation, but from a Jewish perspective, and give a little bit of insight on how they approach Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, Then then, uh, Jim Blosser, one of our resident theologians and salt missionaries who uh, really specializes in faith and science, is going to kind of Round up some of that on August 4th and uh, reconcile some of what they said as well as give us some things to consider as we look at the relationship between faith and science. And then into the rest of August, we're going to look at some more contemporary issues, bioethics and medicine. And and, uh, we've got some phenomenal speakers that are going to come and touch on some of those things. I'm really excited about this series. And part of what I want us to challenge, uh, be challenged by, is this idea of Are we approaching Scripture with the humility to recognize that some of our interpretations may need to continue to grow and be shaped by God, that that he'll open our eyes to more and more of what's going on, that that the point isn't necessarily to bring in people of differing opinions so we can have a debate and an argument and see who wins, but to perhaps ask that question along the lines of, as a church— We say we embrace the idea of generous orthodoxy, that there's some truths that we hold to be essential and core, the nature of God, how we're saved. We don't mess with those. But there's other areas where we can have differing opinions and still honor God. And so we're bringing in some different viewpoints, not to argue with them, but to understand how are people reading the same passage and coming to some different conclusions? What, what is the process behind that? How do we honor God through that? So I really hope that you'll that series, that you'll come down for some of it. If you're gone for some of the weeks, we're going to record the audio. We'll have it available. You can check it out later. Uh, but I'm really excited.
But back to this. All truth is God's truth. And as Christians, as followers of God, I think part, it's important for us to recognize that we haven't had the best track record in this area, but that doesn't mean that we need to continue to have a bad track record in this area. That we can approach it in grace, in humility, that we can recognize that science is not an enemy of faith, but that it's actually something that can be a great tool in pointing people to faith. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your creation, for all the ways that we see your glory in your word and the world around us. God, we ask that you would help us to continue to grow in our wisdom, in our words, that you would bless our efforts to wrestle these topics together, that as we sort through faith and science, that we would honor you in all that we do. God, we are preparing to worship you through our tithes and offerings.